You're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I'm talking to Gary Cooper and Richard Hartgrove from Austin, Texas. Gary is a retired marketing and communications professional, and Richard is retired as a corporate attorney. They've been together almost 36 years. Richard, Gary, thank you for joining me. Our pleasure. Well, tell me a little bit about how you guys met and your story leading up to meeting. We met when we were uh, visiting family in Dallas. Richard lived in New York. I lived in Honolulu. And I was visiting my mother. He was visiting his two children from his prior marriage. Uh, And like many gay people, we met uh, at a gay bar. The significant thing was that it was 9.30 on a Wednesday night. You never know. And it was... 9.30 uh, on a Wednesday night. Uh, (laughs) Midweek. When we're practically the only people in the bar. Uh, I was staying at a friend's house who was out of town for five days. It was July 4th weekend. And so we were able to spend five days. He was sleeping on a friend's sofa. And so we spent five days together in our first encounter. Uh, Then we knew each other that way for four years before uh, the opportunity presented itself for us to become an actual couple and be in the same place. And then I was transferred. Well, I decided to leave New York, which would require leaving AT&T and going back to my home company at Southwestern Bell. And that happened January 1st of 1983. And at that time, Gary's dad in Houston was having medical problems, so he was visiting Houston, which put us back in contact again uh, a lot more often during 1983. And then New Year's Eve uh, 1983, we were on our way to the uh, South Texas to visit a friend, but he called and said, no, no, no electricity, so no heat, so you shouldn't come. So we stopped in Austin at the, uh, now it's called the Line Hotel, I believe it was in Sheraton then, and spent three or four days, and that's, that's what we consider our anniversary. We went, we went to a, a party that night, and we, we were together for the first time in a social situation, for the first time, as opposed to being just in bed, and discovered that we actually liked each other. <laughs> it was, that's that really helps. true. <laughs> so we, we pretty much decided that night, uh, December the 31st of 1983, that we would be together. And then it was easy for me because all I had to do was to wait while Gary pulled off this impossible task of, of leaving a job in Honolulu, leaving a partner in Honolulu, Uh, And he finally pulled that off in, like, June, I think. Yes. Well, I was unwilling to leave my job because I had been invited to visit China on business. This was 1984, and it was just opening up, and, you know, it was a great life opportunity. So I asked that we put everything on hold while I did that. Yes, uh, we had both uh, been in long-term relationships uh, during the time that we were getting to know each other. Keep in mind, this was, uh, you know, we met in the 70s, we, you know, then continued in the early 80s. That was a time when uh, 
many gay couples, I think, you know, were uh, experimenting with what Dan Savage now calls monogamish, that is uh, circumstantial and, you know, sex is sex and that's not your relationship and uh, exploring everything was the thing to do and we were not going to be restrained by uh, the conventions of traditional marriage uh, and the idea of cheating was not really in our vocabulary, you know, it was hard to do and in I think the case of most of my friends it led to failure of relationships <laughs> but the, um, um, anyway that's how we met and at, and in the oh, 70s you probably couldn't even imagine that marriage equality would even oh absolutely not and and um, in both of our cases it was coincidental that the relationships were going cold you know, I tell people I was with my previous partner for 10 years and it should have ended after five, you know, and you mm -hmm. kept trying to make it work and it just, you know, you couldn't get together on it. I don't think there's any blame there, but it was the cost in part, you know, of all the emotional uh, spreading it around too much, you know, with yes. with affairs and, and uh, going to the baths and all the things that we did when we were young. Um, <clears throat> And of course, we like to think that we learned a lot from our previous mistakes. Uh, for me, it was a third relationship. Richard had been married for years, 10 years, mm -hmm. and, uh, and had a partner in New York for eight. And again, he says the same thing, you know, it should have ended after two years, you know, like that. Um, I was with the craziest man in New York. <laughs> but, but also a hard act to follow because he had a PhD in Romance Languages and was a, a, an attorney and uh, brilliant and <laughs> taught Richard a lot about yeah. things that uh, I don't know about. But so that's He obviously saw something in you. You said um, that that night in Austin you realized we actually like each other. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. What was it that you saw in Gary that said, you know, this is more than just a, a fun little hookup? We saw each other in a social situation, in a party with people we didn't know, and how we would react to a person we don't know, the conversation, the listening, and he actually can listen. There are very, very <laughs> few people of my acquaintance that actually listen because most people are trying to think about their next statement and they don't really listen to what's going on. But Gary actually could listen. And that's very attractive to me. Yeah. And there was a lot of laughter that night. I think we all just had a lot of fun. And to be clear, it didn't come right out of the blue, you know, because of my father's stroke in Houston and my having to make eight trips that year from Honolulu and it being the year that Richard had started living in Texas um, and was alone. Uh, we had been together numerous times in a fairly short period of time, more so than before. And so we were just getting to know each other better. And we had considered the possibility of being together much earlier uh, in our friendship, but had both acknowledged that, well, probably it would just be the same thing that we already have in our respective relationships and we should just stay where we are, careers and, and all. I loved what I was doing, he loved what he was doing. But for me also, it was, uh, there was a convenience factor that I had determined in Honolulu that not only was my relationship gone cold, but 
uh, I had kind of leveled off professionally where I was and I needed to make a change and I was in Honolulu and that was hard to do. Uh, and so everything sort of came together very nicely. And I was in New York and wanted to be back in Texas because the divestiture was about to happen, which means AT&T would spin off its operating companies, which means that if I, if I was not on the right side of the dividing line on January 1, 1984, I, would, I wouldn't be able to get back to Texas, and my kids were in Texas. So I had to be near my kids. Oh, I see. Okay. So I tell people I, we owe our marriage to the breakup of AT&T. <laughs> Thanks, AT&T. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ma Bell. So there was a lot of laughter that first night, yes. and Richard, you discovered that Gary could listen yes. well. Um, and the dating started, and you started spending more time together. Do you remember, either of you, the moment in which you thought, this is, I want to invest everything I've got into this. This has potential. It was the, the party. It was at that the party. party. Yes, you knew right I away. Knew. I knew. I, I knew already all about what I need to know about him in bed. <laughs> that was there was no mystery there, but seeing him react with other people in a way that impressed me, especially strangers. You know, you react to strangers. That's that's a gift. And in my case, it was. Um, a process of coming to appreciate that this person loves me back and is willing to talk and you know it's everything is not a negotiation which was what I was contending with before you know and so it worked out for the best almost 36 years mm -hmm. when you reminisce about those almost four decades what comes to mind what are the stories that you think of well, you need to know that right after we got back together, uh, I would say it was, uh, that is, began living together. Uh, it was about five months into it when the HIV test became available. And I uh, tested positive and Richard tested negative. And because we hadn't been together that long, and we knew what lay ahead, uh, I strongly urged him to, let's just stop this now, because, you know, we have not been together a long time. You don't have that much invested. Uh, let me just deal with this. He would hear nothing of that. And, and so we stuck it out together. Uh, so then luckily I was able to kind of ride the crest of the wave, and um, uh, as things got worse, suddenly a new medication would come along or whatever, and yet, you know, I managed to survive, and here I am all this time later. But so, for me, uh, that was a, a, a tremendously bonding experience, you know, that, that I was suddenly facing death and, and horrible pain, and, and I had somebody to help me, you know, it's to stay with me, to be uh, the shoulder I could, you know, cry on. That kind right, of because in the mid '80s we didn't have prep and we didn't have protease inhibitors, and we didn't even have a support group. <laughs> you know, yeah. there was nothing. <laughs> we had to create that from nothing, and that's exactly what I got involved with. Um, 
after our couple, first couple of years we were, uh, being in Austin, Richard began to be uh, rewarded with big promotions and transfers to other cities. And uh, as I said, I had to become sort of a camp follower and re recreate myself in every town. But that put me in places like Little Rock, Arkansas, organizing the first response to AIDS with another guy. And then in St. Louis, uh, where they were much more uh, advanced in, in developing a response. But still, then, it was a monthly meeting of a hundred men uh, and operating with a shoebox, you know, for funds. And we had to figure out how to make it all work as a system and work together in organizational behavior. It was a, an all-consuming um, endeavor for most of us and not at all easy to do because we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, so that's one way that I've always felt that I got through it was in encouraging others. Richard, was that hard for you when you tested negative and he was no. positive? No. no. How, did, how did you overcome the fear that many people had back then and even still today? I guess I was in denial. I just said, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll worry about that when I have to. Again, the bond was so strong. Yeah, mm -hmm. you just were gonna. I face finally it. found the man I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. So I'm not, not gonna let something like that get in the way. Yeah, we did change our uh, sexual <coughs> practices. I mean, we began to have sex safely, and uh, and we've had to readjust recently, uh, unexpectedly, because. Now there's no sex because Gary's on hormone therapy. And so we decided that if there was not going to be any sex, we needed some way to maintain the physical intimacy between us. It couldn't be because we, we sleep in separate bedrooms because, because he used to snore. <laughs> allegedly, he used to, allegedly used to snore. <laughs> so we decided that we would um, have an hour of intimacy physical intimacy in bed together before we go to bed, if it's possible. I mean, obviously we're gonna be out late, maybe we don't do it. But that has that has made a big difference. And then of course, because Gary had lymphedema, uh, the first 30 minutes of that is done by me doing a, a massage to move the, the lymph fluid up the legs as I was taught by his professional masseuse. Uh, then we spend the rest of the, and we also listen to music. Uh, so listening to music, massage, touching, caressing, massaging has, has, has actually, I really feel, has actually made us more intimate and closer. In ways we never were before. Yeah. To put that in perspective, um, about a year ago, I was uh, diagnosed, uh, totally out of the blue with a very advanced case of prostate cancer and too late for surgery and that his uh, reference to hormone therapy is hormone suppression therapy uh, and Lord I had no idea that we are so driven by testosterone because <laughs> when it's gone the world is very different you really feel I went into that with as if this is a death because we you feel like I'm 
I'm old now, but I'm still living for sex because it's still good. And that's the main thing. And I love Richard and we have great sex. Then suddenly it's taken away from you. And only then did I realize there's a lot more to life. <laughs> and for one thing, if you ever have to go through that process, what really surprised me was that without the testosterone, you don't remember sex. You don't remember what it was that was so important about it. And I actually have that feeling of what was that all about? You know, and, and now I feel so open to many more aspects of life and the beauty of living and, and uh, spend, frankly, spend a lot more time just sitting and looking at my meditation garden you know, and feeling good about it. Overall, the cancer treatment uh, has gone very well. Uh, my numbers are all good, and um, so I have no reason to not be optimistic about the future. And I went into it, I have to say, uh, thinking consciously, you know, finally, there's something positive that came from living with HIV for 35 years, and that is I have no fear of dying. Uh, it, I went to... After in the first months of shock of you know finding myself in this situation, the first weeks I went to bed untru untroubled every night. You know, I, um, it it carried me through. You know, and enabled me to keep a positive attitude, uh, and that was of course greatly enabled by having the support of a loving partner. In addition to HIV and cancer, what has challenged your relationship and how have you gotten through that? Well, about three years after Gary and I got together, uh, I was the general attorney for Southwestern Bell in Arkansas and Gary had finally found a job uh, after searching for about nine months and I was summoned to St. Louis to talk to the general attorney and he said that rumors in Arkansas were that I was living a gay lifestyle. And that was unacceptable uh, because of my visibility in the community. And that effective the next day, I would be transferred back to St. Louis to headquarters and they were making up some kind of job for me, quote, until the rumors died down. Oh my quote. gosh, wow. So suddenly I found myself 40 years old, HIV positive and alone in Little Rock, Arkansas, working for Heifer Project. <laughs> it was a horrible situation. And what are we going to do? You know, uh, I, meanwhile, I'm staying behind to sell the house, you know, the wonderful house that we had been fortunate to find. And then miraculously, um, there was a kind of palace revolt at Heifer Project. That's a long story I won't bother you with, but uh, the end result was that I got laid off. Oh. <laughs> and it was the only time I was, you know, ever lost a job, and I was yeah. so happy about Grateful. it. Grateful. Cool. Because... <laughs> I've been laid off. Yay! <laughs> I was, so I was let go. So I was free then to move to St. Louis. And, and we have to acknowledge, you know, in retrospect, that we had much better lives and careers in uh, St. Louis, both of us, uh, than, than we really were 
uh, entering into in, in uh, Little Rock. We still have friends in Little Rock, and we still go back and visit. Yeah. Arkansas is wonderful. And I would hasten to add, it was not Arkansas that threw us out. It, it was, was the phone, phone company. You know, it was a very uh, conservative. And we should also company. point out that, that these days, AT&T is actually sponsoring uh, LBTQ events. Yes. Right. Very different time. Very different time. It's a different world. The rumors never really died down, did they? No, they didn't. <laughs> but I was, I was able to retire at 51. Well. With well. a great package, so. Yeah. And I had better health care, so, in St. Louis, and a great job that I got to do, so. Thank um, you for sharing that great. story. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about your coming out experiences. I'm one of those people that always knew, you know, from the earliest age uh, that I was different and that I was attracted to men. It was the 1950s and graduating from high school in the early 60s. It was a fate worse than death. And, you know, it was something that I've actually had friends who are still uh, friends from high school say, well, why didn't you tell us you were gay? (laughs) I had to explain because you would have killed me. They don't even remember their attitudes back then. Exactly. It was a very different world. And I, I did, I, I just couldn't connect. I couldn't find anybody. Finally, uh, one day in, uh, the commons at the University of Texas, it was just like out of the movies, you know, across the room, we locked eyes, you know, we were both seniors, we had a great time. Then uh, he, we were gonna be drafted, I joined Vista, he was arrested for possession of marijuana, that ended all that. And so then I went through uh, the year of Vista and going to management training And I landed in New York in June of 1969. I had been hired by W.W. Norton Publishing Company to begin my career, and I was so excited, and I was going to let nothing get in the way of that. A friend who lived uh, two blocks from the Stonewall uh, on Waverly Place offered to let me stay at his place over the summer. And uh, the first night there, I realized that his cousin, Nevia Gonzalez, was uh, uh, going to be there also. And that night, you know, we had sex and I entered into a relationship with a woman. It was very bad timing because it was about two weeks later that the Stonewall riot occurred. Uh, I was told, you know, this is happening. This is happening down the street. Come on. I said, no, I'm not going to get arrested again. (laughs) I'd been arrested in civil rights demonstrations in Texas and I... Uh, I didn't want to do anything that would endanger, you know, this this uh, career opportunity that I finally had, and so I didn't. But it changed everything radically. I did attend the follow-up gay organizing meetings that occurred at Judd Memorial Church on the south side of Washington Square in the days following the ends of the the end of the demonstrations. Uh, now you have to understand that when I arrived in New York in June, um, that everyone explained to me to be very careful when out on the streets in New York, in the West Village, in the gay area, because there's a loitering law, and if you stop in a doorway talking to someone, you will be arrested. You know, they were very um, uh, persistent in in, um, uh, going after the gays. I think it was politically helpful, you know, and 
and now we understand, you know, the bars were owned by the mafia and there was a lot of paying off and everything. Um, but for me, um, everything changed overnight, not directly because of Stonewall, but because of the excitement in the air of what was happening afterwards. Uh, it, it was the first I had, you know, I had participated in civil rights demonstrations for African-Americans. I had served in Vista working with Mexican farm workers. It had never occurred to me that we could actually have, you know, our own rights as gay people. It, uh, it was not just a sickness. And that opened me up to life. Uh, and boy, that was a good summer. The next challenge was that the, the weekend before I was to begin my job on Monday morning was Woodstock. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and my friend said, come and go to the, this uh, big music festival. I said, no, I think I better not, you know, and I, you know, so I had big regrets that I didn't join the riot and I didn't go to Woodstock, but I did get my gay identity. It did motivate me to want to continue to be an organizer. And, uh, I was able to do that with HIV, the response to AIDS, uh, and I've never shied away from uh, talking about being gay and, and our rights uh, throughout my life. So I feel like that was a, a real turning point for me coming out. What an amazing story. Richard, can you top that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. My, my story, I guess, probably starts in law school uh, when I had a major anxiety attack in the middle of law school finals because I was getting married in three weeks. I knew that I was not heterosexual, uh, but you know, I'm from a West Texas ranch family and that's just not something people did. My fiance took me to a psychiatrist and we talked and he said, well, we'll try to conform your conscious, your unconscious desires to your conscious desires. Oh, in other gosh. words, make, make me straight, right? Yeah. <laughs> So we see how, you see how that how well that, that worked out, but so I got married, and uh, we were fairly happy for five or six years. But then, again, I knew I was not not straight. So I was transferred. I was an attorney with Salvatore Bell in St. Louis, and I got transferred to Houston. And my wife said in St. St. Louis while I was looking for a job, a house, etc. And I walked into a bookstore and had sex, well, I sat, sat, stood there while sex was performed on me and th thought, well, I could, I, that's what I like. And I, and I did that several times and, and about two years later, I got transferred to New York and again, my wife stayed behind and then I met my partner in New York. So by the time my wife got to New York, because during that time, my brother was killed in a plane crash, which delayed everything. So it was three, I was three months in New York without my wife living as a gay man. And when my wife finally got there, uh, we bought our house in White Plains, had two kids, it was all over. So in 1977, left the wife, left the kids, and had to go back into therapy because, oh my God, leaving my kids was just so very painful. I bet. Uh, and it, to this day, is painful. Um, but I'm still close to the children, uh, close to the grandchildren. We go to Colorado every every summer. 
uh, and, and spent a week in Colorado with all the kids and grandkids. But to this, to this day, I have guilt about what I did to my ex-wife, and that was burying her when I knew who I was. And of course, she died in 1996. So. She did. But nevertheless, I still feel the guilt. That was really the only option for oh, yeah. gay men back then, though, right? Either to be alone or to marry. Yes, but it was so unfair. So unfair to her. I just never never got all the gift. Couldn't, couldn't do it. And her dying didn't make that much of a difference. I still remembered that I had done that. Yeah. But she... she got married to another guy in my law school class and had a an okay life but then he got throat cancer and then she died very soon thereafter so mm-hmm. this is not a pretty story well it's not a pretty story and this is audio not video but i'm watching the two of you together and how you're smiling and you're laughing and there's a sparkle in both of your eyes and uh some of that's tears <laughs> i was gonna, i was gonna say there's a lot of loss in your story yeah, yeah. and yet i i i sense a, a strength and a resilience there's a lot of forgiveness in that story oh, too. Yeah. we have to forgive ourselves and you know you can see the richard struggles with that i struggled for years because i left the partner in honolulu and it was very very difficult for him and because i was the one that left, you know, I, of course, was the one with the guilt. Uh, We have to forgive ourselves for a lot of the things that we do in life, you know, and and just keep going. And uh, that was a couple of the big ones for us. A difficulty is for me associated with this story that Richard just told you is that his children never accepted me. And now they have children and I was never included. There's a family get-together in Colorado every year, rafting and you know, doing things together for uh, bonding for the two children's families. I was never included. I had to uh, forgive and just accept. Still and today, you're not. It's embarrassing because we're so openly gay and people see us as this uh, example of, of you know gay civil rights movement and you know, I have this terrible secret. Yes. You know? <laughs> I, I think that's my failure. I was unable to bring my children along with me on that journey. Yeah. But what do you think you could have done differently, or what do you wish you had done differently? Well, I don't know. That's I, I did everything I thought I should do, but they they were teenage years um, when we got together, and they were quite hostile to the idea. And then my, my daughter married a man, a very religious man, and they are very religious. Even own a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> no, they run a Chick-fil-A. Run a Chick-fil-A. All Chick-fil-A's are owned by corporate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and so she's become much more religious and they don't approve of homosexuality. So it was clear to me that, you know, Richard faced the prospect, if he insisted on my inclusion, of losing them himself. And, you know, he didn't want to lose access to his grandchildren. And, you know, he very 
carefully built this relationship that he has with his family, and I, I understand that, you know. Some of my, some of my friends, I think, think that I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, but I don't see it that way. But they, they criticize me for allowing it to happen. Oh. I don't see it that way. I mean, I, I do wish that I'd been able to do it. But I've got, I'm so guilty about so many other things. I'm not going to waste my time on that. <laughs> what would you say to young couples who are perhaps just getting started? What have you learned about resilience and making it through the hard times? What would you want them to know? Make sure it's the right one before you say I love you. And, but before you make any commitment, make sure it's the right one. I would remind us that Richard and I knew each other for four years before we became a real couple. Um, and of course, there's always stuff you don't know. It's been interesting to us that the trouble that we have had as a couple <clears throat> tended to be the same argument over and over and over and over. And it has to do with just basic personality traits. Yes. Um, we had that argument right after uh, I started this uh, hormone suppression therapy. And I should have realized, you know, they tell you that you become more emotional. And suddenly we had this confrontation, you know, that we've always had. If I use the wrong tone of voice, Richard challenged it. I burst into tears. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. But also was Richard embarrassed, you know. And uh, so he's been a lot more forgiving and understanding of me <laughs> since then. <laughs> and I take full advantage of it. But <laughs> no, I certainly, um, we both took a big step with that burst of tears. I think the real message I'm trying to say is that you continually have to forgive each other. And, you know, there are, there are times, well, one of the rules that Richard laid out when we began as a couple, which I thought was very sensible, he said, never go to bed mad. Always discuss it before you go to bed. And that's I'm really helpful. We're both mad. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way. Uh, so if I have a message, it's that, I guess. Most couples that have been together for a really long time say that they in one way or another, had to kind of fall in love again a few times. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah? That's true for you all. Oh, yeah. Something we never <clears> lost <throat> that I think many couples allow to happen was sexual attraction to each other. And you have to con consciously aim for that. You, you find the wonder and the thrill each time. And... Don't take it for granted if I have any advice. Yeah, you know, that's for sure. That's what we have to recreate all the time. Is and that and the way that you're recreating it now. Yeah. Without the sex. Without the sex. It, <laughs> right. it was such a beautiful story as you were talking about massage and music and, and what that, incredibly yeah. intimate. And what that led to really is a level of bonding, of, of loving each other that I swear we didn't have before. We thought we had it, but we didn't realize how much we didn't have that. Well, hearing that he had an aggressive form of cancer certainly uh, sparked me into action. I mean, I th I'd been taking it for granted, I think, for the past 32, 40 was years. 
And I thought, oh my God, I might lose this man that I love so much. And it, believe me, I've been a lot nicer to him than I was before. Uh, so, <clears throat> what a wonderful story. That's it. <laughs> uh, I don't know of anybody in Austin that's more respected than the two of you. So thank you for um, the way that you model for our community, not only your civil rights work, but just um, the, the work that you've done with nonprofits over the years and just the uh, presence that you have in our community. I don't know if you even realize um, how much you're modeling that for all of us. So thank you. It's and thank you life. for joining me on the show today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Do you know any LGBT couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them. So please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week.